Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. All right, my name is Kevin Wagner. I'm the senior project, currently the senior project manager for the Levees, Flowballs, and Armoring branch, Orleans Parish portion in the HPO office, which is the Hurricane Protection Office. Born and raised in St. Bernard Parish, uh, lived there all my life. We were there for Hurricane Betsy in 1965. We had six feet of water in our house at that point. This last storm, we were living in Charlotte, which is about three miles down the road from where we were uh, raised. And uh, we had about 12 feet of water in our house after water had settled. My name is Joanne Woods, and I'm Equal Employment Specialist working in the EEO office at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. I grew up in the Holly Grove area on the other side of Tulane. My father was a minister. My mother was a very proper woman who maintained decorum for us. I always thought she was the minister because she lived that life. My daddy was more outgoing, and then I moved on uh, between Palmetto and Earhart, and that's where I raised my children. I was well known as well as my parents, and I felt very comfortable because everybody knew my children and they knew us, so my children couldn't do anything without it being told to me. My name is Ann Marino. I currently work at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, New Orleans District. I have worked here for 14 years. I grew up in Bucktown and went to St. Louis King of France School. I moved at the age of 10 to Lakeview and went to St. Dominic School and Montcalmel Academy for high school. My home is um, in Lakeview on 16th Street, maybe 20 blocks away from where the breach was on the 17th Street Canal. I got here about six weeks before the storm. Of course, I got here and uh, just kind of figured out what was going on in the district, had seen a, a few of our projects, uh, and looked over our emergency operations plan and said, you know, it needs some work, but it's basically, it's, it's a pretty sound plan. Um, found out about the threat of Hurricane Katrina. We were at the, uh, uh, of course, we, we were tracking it for about a week out, thinking that it was uh, gonna go and turn severely to the north after it crossed the Florida Panhandle and was probably gonna hit uh, right there and in the, in the much further to our east. And uh, Friday afternoon, uh, Senator Vitter was here doing a uh, congressional field testimony that, that Major General Riley, the DCW, was down doing. We were supporting that. Colonel Wagonar was out on the boat at the low water uh, inspection of the Mississippi River with the Mississippi River Commission. And I got an email uh, at about 11 o'clock said, it looks like the latest forecast is it's turned and it's coming right at us. Uh, and so we immediately, uh, we'd already uh, activated our emergency operations center because we were in the cone. But we immediately went into uh, a second phase of activation and determined that we would have to evacuate all of our people and set up our teams in Vicksburg. So we did that uh, Friday afternoon's meeting at about uh, 1300. On Friday, August 26th, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers issued an emergency order and advised its employees to evacuate. Initially, the humidity was so high here, it had me feeling bad, and I didn't feel like driving out to Baton Rouge, and I had two dogs I would had to cart up and take, and then when my daddy decided he wasn't leaving, I decided I would with him because I didn't want to leave him. So my daughter uh, became very concerned when the mayor starts saying everybody should evacuate, 
and I explained to her how I felt and I didn't think I could drive with the dogs or I didn't even feel like loading up. So she asked her fiance at the time to, to bring his truck to get me, which he did. Prior to him getting there, I tried to convince my daddy to leave, but my daddy said he had withstood Camille, Betsy, he named a few other storms that he wasn't leaving. He wasn't gonna let Leo Katrina make him leave his home. But one of the kids in the neighborhood uh, was coming down the street to go sit with him, and he said, look, I'll take care of profit. You don't have to worry, because that's what they call him, a profit. And he said, I don't, you don't have to worry. If something happened, I'll make sure he get out. We gave uh, an emergency evacuation order. Some people, uh, most people, you know, 90, 99% heeded the evacuation. There were some, they were hard-headed, and, uh, and or had, had, a, had a, a loved one that, that, that they couldn't get out uh, soon enough. They had uh, pets that they didn't want to leave behind, so they stayed. And uh, we told people just be in Vicksburg with our team uh, on Sunday. I decided I needed to leave a little bit earlier because I wanted to get up there and make sure everything was set up. I was a member of the team that went to Vicksburg, so I was brought to the Vicksburg area along with several other teammates to try to address and, and run the district from Vicksburg. I have blue-collar workers, folks that can drive dozers, dump trucks, those kind of folks that can actually uh, fill sandbags and do things that, we, that you would normally associate with flood fighting. So those folks we sent to Port Allen and they would be dispatched to the site. I mean, you don't know where you're going to have troubles for a hurricane, so you don't know where you're going to send these folks. So again, those equipment and, and personnel were placed out of harm's way and just put on standby waiting for the storm to pass to see where their, where to, their actions would be needed. One of our good friends that works with the division office here um, within the Mississippi Valley Division, Rayford Wilbanks, who offered his lake house to us. Uh, which was uh, very nice and very convenient for us because we had not made hotel accommodations and we could not get a hotel room at that point in time. Drove to Vicksburg, arrived there at 4.30 in the morning, Rayford met us at his lake house. Uh, then he called me up at 11 o'clock that Sunday morning. He said, do you want to attend a meeting with a briefing general career? And I said, certainly, because I want to know what's going on. So came Sunday when we were really threatened and it was looking uh, very dangerous. We were all set to, to get in our vehicle and, and head to Vicksburg, and, and so we did. That, that hotel that the Corps uses, while well, I was staying there with a bunch of people who were actually assigned to the EOC this time, I was not for Katrina. But as soon as they saw me, they said, hey, we, we can use a guy. Come on over to the EOC and our, our, uh, our remote district setup. They had set up uh, the, the command center for the New Orleans district there in Vicksburg. And so I joined the team that same day, the Sunday before Katrina. I evacuated the Sunday before the storm that morning with uh, 12 other family members, in-laws, and my sister and my nephew, uh, my husband, son, and also my in-laws, in-laws. Early in the morning of August 29th, Hurricane Katrina made landfall in Grand Isle, Louisiana, just southeast of the city of New Orleans. Early in the morning, we were uh, talking to the lockmaster at the Inner Harbor Navigation Canal, and I recall him saying that he was looking back towards the lake and he could see the water going over both sides of the flood walls. In, in hindsight, we think that was about 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning, and uh, that was our first indication that uh, you know the surges were really going to be high. 
I immediately called the Orleans Levy District to see what kind of reports they were getting as far as surge elevations or problems, and also to notify them of the uh, what, what the Lockmaster had relayed to us. And uh, did talk to Steve Spencer, and Steve uh, didn't really have any any good ground truth as to water elevations. They had some localized problems that they pretty much expected, but. Uh, Nothing serious at that point. And on that morning, I called him about 6.30 or something to 7, and we spoke to him, and he said he had a low water in his house to his ankle. And so at 9.30, we tried to call him again, and we didn't get an answer. And we were real concerned about it, but we, were, we just figured the phone lines were down. According to data released by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, a storm surge of 15 to 19 feet occurred in eastern New Orleans, St. Bernard Parish, and Plaquemines Parish. The surge overtopped large sections of the levees east of New Orleans, in Orleans Parish, and St. Bernard Parish. And it also pushed water up the intracoastal waterway and into the Inner Harbor Navigational Canal commonly called the Industrial Canal. Breaches along the Industrial Canal, the London Avenue Canal, and the 17th Street Canal appear to have occurred during the early morning hours of August 29th. Overall, about 80% of the city of New Orleans flooded to varying depths up to 20 feet within 24 hours of Katrina's landfall. With phone lines down and power outages widespread, Joanne Woods tried desperately to contact her father. It would be several days before she learned that the young man who was looking after him had taken her father to an emergency aid center. And put him on a plane and brought him to San Antonio where there they put him in a hospital. At the time, we didn't know that, but we knew he was rescued. So we started going to the uh, uh, shelters, just walking through to see if we saw people we knew looking for my father. And uh, he wasn't in any of the shelters. And after we went to one third or fourth shelters, I broke down. I just couldn't take it to see all of the carts lined up with people with bags of belongings sitting there. So then we started calling the Red Cross and we registered him online. And when he went to San Antonio, they put him in the hospital. He remembered my brother's number in Alexandria and he called my brother. And my brother called us to give us the number. And when I called my dad, I heard his voice. I just broke down. So <clears throat> they discharged and we had to drive to San Antonio and we brought him back to Baton Rouge and put him in the hospital there. And he died um, two weeks later. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, better with it. Uh, because I know uh, he had given up. And when he saw the devastation of the flood and uh, then Rita came right behind it, I could see him growing weak. And then he said to me, you got to let me go. And I prayed on it and I had to let him go because that was what he wanted. I know he wasn't promised to stay here forever, so. Hurricane Katrina moved north, leaving widespread power outages in its wake. 
the New Orleans District Corps of Engineers Emergency Operations Center, now working out of Vicksburg, Mississippi, found itself operating on generators and with limited communication ability. You know, the, uh, the first confirmed uh, breach that, that we got was uh, Tuesday morning at about uh, 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. So it hit landfall Monday and it built up, you know, I had, like a dummy, I would stayed up all night Sunday and all day Monday and, and I was kind of in vapor lock. Uh, I'd gone back uh, to see my, to check on my family and uh, to catch a couple hours of sleep and I just laid my head down the pillow and uh, Greg Brewwood and Tom Fredani were knocking on my door. Uh, said, hey, we got a bridge 17th Street Canal, Hammond Highway Bridge. Uh, I was so new, I, I thought Hammond Highway Bridge was Hammond. Well, geez, that's not too bad. No, no, no. That's right downtown in the heart of New Orleans. It's the water pouring into the city, so that's not good. So uh, my initial response was, oh, crap. Uh, second response was, all right, now what are we going to do to close this? At this point, had no communications. Could get through probably once every uh, six or so hours with Colonel Wagonar. He had received the report, I think it was, again, from a core employee who, is, who was watching CNN in another location and reported that the, uh, one of the canals had a failure. And were you surprised by that? Yes, very much so. And can you explain why? Well, uh, when, when I thought about how the walls were designed, uh, the discussions that have ha occurred over the years of, you know, the course designs were very conservative. Uh, some people said too conservative. And... Uh, just had the uh, indication or the feeling that the you know the uh, the geotechnical aspect of that design was a very conservative design, so would not expect any problems. Actually, had an earlier report, uh, early report from a Corps employee who had made it out to the canals, who indicated that uh, he had spoken to an eyewitness and that there was overtopping witnessed along there. That turned out later to not be uh, factual. From the data, but that was the early report. So, with the high surge in the industrial canal and then the eyewitness supposedly at 17th, you know, we felt that uh, probably were over time. We didn't know at that point that they failed uh, on the outfall canals prior to being over time. And were you surprised by the living Um Yeah, I was, to be honest. You know, I. I, I, I I knew that we were going to have overtopping, and no one could predict where we were going to have failures. Um, but the, the the massive amount of, of water coming into the city, I, you know, we were kind of, I think I was maybe a little naive, operating under the assumption that you know, look, we're going to have a lot of water over the system, but it's strong, it should hold, uh, and then we'll just be a function of, of getting the water out as quickly as possible. Not that we would have water pouring in through gaps in the system, uh, but it was a massive, massive storm. Um, you know, I, I really thought initially some of the, we had, we had eyewitness reports, people calling the, 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 our crisis management team, we called it at the time in Vicksburg, saying that they had seen water coming over the top of the flood walls. Well, okay, it sounds like it was just simply overwhelming. Uh, you know, we know now that, that some of these flood walls failed before they were actually over top of the large volume of water. They had waves and water washing over, but not amounts of water. So I was, I was surprised that we had failures where we had failures, but I wasn't surprised in the eastern part had simple overwhelming. I mean, that wasn't a failure. It, it, it was just simply overwhelming. And it was ground down to nothing based on just the volume of water and velocities of water from the other top. When was the decision made to start filling up the sandbags? And how was that organized? 
Um, sometime between 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday. Which was uh, an hour after you found right. a confirmed route. We, uh, we were uh, trying to come up with ideas and closing it. So uh, basically I signed, uh, I can't remember, Chris Ricardo, I know, I said, look, we're going to go out this three ways. Got to go by land, got to go by air, got to go by sea. And I gave the, uh, the land uh, mission to Walter Baumey, Chief Engineering, because, you know, he knows how to get trucks operating and getting them going. Just getting to it, you could close the... Uh the breach with rock, uh, and you know that was the preferred method. Actually, that's that's what we wanted to do, but uh, getting there was the uh, the most difficult task because you had water in Jefferson Parish also, so you really had no land access. Uh, as soon as we found big enough vehicles to get there, you know we were we were ready to work. At the uh, local levy districts were already working building a road back there. And so that kind of synchronized with what we wanted to do, and we, we got in there to close it. I gave the air operation to Chris Ricardo because he's chief of operations and understands some of that. Uh, and then I gave the sea operation, I think, to Tom Fadani, because uh, Tom understood the locks and the, the lay of the land here and how we could get, we could get marine uh, barges and, and deck barges and cranes and equipment and material through the IHNC or even if bringing it in from the North Shore Lake Poncha train. And said, okay, look, you guys have a half hour to come with the plan. And Chris Carter looked at me and said, you want to do what? You want to take a plane and, or a helicopter and pick stuff up? Can they do that? Oh, we didn't know what we were going to drop into there using the helicopter. We thought at first Jersey barriers, that those are the concrete barriers alongside highways. We thought about just dropping cars that were flooded. Anything we could get our hands on to try to put in there, we were going to try and, and, and use just anything we could. Uh, and we turned, we eventually got to the sandbags and we got to the bigger sandbags and that's what we wound up putting in there. Well, yeah, sandbags are great, but you need the material to fill them with. Okay, now we had the sandbags delivered to the site, but they were obviously empty. So my crew called me and said, well, Chris, what do I need to, where, where do I get the material to fill the sandbags? I said, just dig whatever you're standing on, just put it in the sandbags and fill it. During that time, there was a lot of, you know, you'd be on the night shift for 12 hours, mm -hmm. and then you'd be on for six more hours, possibly, if, if, if there was a, just a whole lot of activity, uh, like during this time period. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of brainstorming about how we can close the breaches and then start to gather facts. You know, uh, our hired labor group needed to gather the right rigging and slings to lift the bags. We had to get the bags, had to locate the material. And I, I just run in some calculations quickly about the volume we needed and, the, uh, and, and what would fit in a bag and the number of bags it would take. And I thought, this is not going to work. It's going to take us, you know, how long is it going to take for us to move that many bags? Most of the helicopters at that time were in search and rescue, all right? We did not have helicopters on contract. That's a lesson learned. We have helicopters on contract now. But the truth is most of the helicopters that were coming to the area were search and rescue helicopters that were National Guard helicopters. We were going through the state for the helicopters. So we didn't have any that were really assigned to us to drop anything. So I was calling down trying to push aircraft down there and they, they, they weren't getting the support. That's why I decided to leave Vicksburg and go to Baton Rouge to the state EOC and, and uh, try to help coordinate that effort so they can understand the importance of getting the helicopters assigned to us permanently for this mission for as long as we needed them to close the gaps so that they would have to do less potentially uh, search and rescue missions because we could stop the water flowing in. Um, did they understand that? Yeah. They did. Well, they understood that. <laughs> I had a very nice conversation with the, uh, 
emergency operations uh, guys, uh, really, the, he was a, uh, I think a National Guard Lieutenant Colonel engineer who, uh, who had the job, the, the thankless job of trying to coordinate all the, uh, the air support. At a time when we couldn't find helicopters because the helicopters were doing search and rescue, uh, there was a fellow that called me, I think it was in the middle of the night, I was in Vicksburg, and he said he could get a hold of two Russian helicopters, two helicopters that apparently could drop an awful lot, of, they could pick up and drop an awful lot of weight. Uh, when he contacted me, I got in touch with Colonel Wagner, and I talked to the gentleman, and he said, look, we could probably get them over here. They cost about $100,000 each per day. That was a little more than I was comfortable with approving. So I got with Colonel Wagner. He thought for a few seconds. He said, go ahead and try and get him. So I gave the guy the approval to go ahead and get him. Uh, to make a long story short, the helicopters never did make their way here because there was some kind of problem getting through customs. And by the time they would have gotten through customs, we had the breach closed because some of the other helicopters had got off the search and rescue. But the reason why I tell that story is because the mindset at that time was, Money was no object. We were going to spend the $200,000 a day if it gave us the advantage to close those breaches, and we were going to do it if we could pull it off. First was assigned to Task Force Unwatering, which was responsible for getting the water out of certain areas, the areas that were inundated, particularly in Orleans, St. Bernard, and Plaquemines. Was assigned to uh, St. Bernard Parish after basically fighting, to, uh, arguing with Colonel Wagoner, um, who was the commander at that time, to get my home uh, parish. Then I was able to at least go back to my home parish uh, where I was born and raised um, and actually get the water out of the, uh, out of the area. So when we finally got in touch with the folks down in St. Bernard Parish, particularly Bob Turner, who was the executive director of the Lake Farm Basin Levy District at the time, and he said, you just got to help my guys out. You know, we can handle running the pump stations, but, you know, we need food, clothing, water, diesel um, to run the engines. We started giving those guys some relief. We actually had some of our hired labor folks uh, go in and start taking over the operation of the pump stations themselves, just so his guys could get some rest, because they had been doing it since day one. A lot of the members of my team were actually lived in St. Bernard Parish. We knew they'd had the same sense of urgency that, that we all had. Uh, to get the water out and help our friends and neighbors recover. So we actually one day decided to take an hour or two to ride through the neighborhood just so people could check on their house. Uh, and it was pretty devastating for a lot of folks because they didn't realize again the extent of the damage that occurred and the depth of the water that we received. I mean we had furniture and cars sitting up on rooftops and boats sitting up on rooftops that nobody would envision. But we all took a ride, checked on our house, and then immediately got right back to work. On October 11, 2005, 43 days after Katrina's landfall, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers reported that all floodwaters had been removed from the city of New Orleans. My house is eventually was torn down. Um, you know, we, we had gutted everything. When we had time, uh, the spare time that we did have, we eventually went in the house and tried to, I guess, reclaim what we could. But my youngest daughter was living at home at the time, which my oldest daughter was up at LSU. But when I called up and said, listen, tell me your top five things you would like to have out of the house, her first reaction was, Dad, I want my teeth and my medals. 
um, that because she played AAU basketball. And I, first I didn't think we had a good connection because I couldn't understand what she was telling me. The wind was blowing and everything else. And it's like, honey, can you repeat that? And she said, yeah, I want my teeth. I said, can you say that one more time? <laughs> and she said, yes, my baby teeth, Dad. I want my baby teeth because what she had done over the years, and I was kind of unaware of it myself, but every time she had a tooth or lost a tooth, um, she would put it in a little ketchup cup. And she had that sitting in her dresser drawer that she wanted to have back. So eventually when I did have a few hours here and there after work to go look through the house, um, we actually had to pull her dresser apart piece by piece. And I had already taken out the window in the house and I was throwing them out the window. But I basically took that dresser apart piece by piece to find that little ketchup cup that had her baby teeth. Of the 1,200 people employed by the Corps of Engineers New Orleans District, more than 400 returned to flooded homes. Joanne Woods was one of them. I came back to the Corps of Engineers in, um, I want to say, late October, early November. And let me say this, coming back to my coworkers, who were like family to me, was the best thing that happened to me. Once I got back here, I felt I was satisfied because I was back with my work family. They had a good personality, even though all of us in the same boat, dealing with the same tragedy, we were emotional support for each other, and that helped me get through the days. But I still, each day I drove through New Orleans, I cried. Sometimes I didn't even know the tears were rolling down my eyes. I was just that upset to see the city where I grew up, everything I knew was just totally destroyed. I'm not talking about the French quarters because that, that's New Orleans, but it wasn't the main part of my life. The whole city was my life, and I just could not stand it. I, sometimes I didn't even know I was crying. When I get to work, they say, why are you crying? I say, I'm crying. And then they say, yeah. And I would wipe, and I had tear, tears all on my face because it just was so much to deal with. My son Daryl and his cat that he had for three weeks before um, Hurricane Katrina. It was an early birthday present. His birthday was um, four days before Hurricane Katrina. We had a very brief birthday party, which was mostly just family members. Um, none of the kids came because everybody was packing up and uh, trying to evacuate. There are um, a few balloons um, that stayed and kind of coated by the mucky waters um, even a month after. And, uh, this is our dining room and you can see a nice little preserved birthday balloon. It was kind of eerie, just all the balloons just all over in our living room area, kind of scattered throughout the house. Some more balloons and the piano and antique furniture. Didn't have much, didn't have much at all. Pretty much all the wood split, cracked, peeled, um, just warped, uh, very minimal stuff. Maybe like some planter stands, um, stuff we might have kept for a little while. And then it just, um, after a while, it wasn't, it started cracking and drying out and ended up throwing it away, it's things that we were trying to save. This is our um, FEMA trailer, which is um, right in front of our house, well, was in front of our house. 
and it was our first Christmas in the FEMA trailer. Well, actually, our only Christmas in the FEMA trailer. And my my son was concerned that uh, Santa wouldn't find him. So my husband decorated um, the FEMA trailer with all the Christmas lights that did not get flooded in our attic so that Santa would find our son, Daryl, and uh, find him Christmas Eve. We also submitted it to the local uh, news station, and they came to um, film us as one of the bright, cheery moments at Christmas time that year. All of the levees and flood walls damaged during Katrina have been repaired. The Corps of Engineers has also designed and built three new floodgates and pumping stations at the outfall canals. And now you're the canal captain at 17th Street Canal. Um, tell us a little bit about the pumping station. Okay, well, uh, pumping station was built after Katrina uh, with these new closure structures that we have. The flood walls that failed during Katrina are now protected from the surge of the lake. So it means everything as far as keeping the flood walls from, from ever failing again. By closing these structures, we keep the surge off of those flood walls. We have a safe canal level identified as six feet for this canal, and we make sure that the level does not exceed that. What it means, though, is by putting a wall or a set of gates between the sewage and water board and the lake, we have to pump that water again in order to get it out, get it out of the city. So, uh, and then thus we have all this pumping capacity, but it, it does protect the city very well and, and keep the flood walls from ever seeing the high surge level again. And so now we're up to 9,200 CFS cubic feet per second. That's, that's a lot of water. It's comparable to what the sewage and water board pumps of the canal toward us. There are risks associated with every way to live that. If you live in California, you gotta deal with earthquakes, you gotta deal with you know, wildfires, flash floods, uh, just flooding events themselves. If you live out in Florida, you have the same risk that we have. You got hurricanes that come every year. Um, we all know the risk. Um, we choose to live here because this is our home. Uh, this is where we grew up. Um, it's no different than anywhere else. I mean, there is probably not a part of the country that's not exposed to some risk. But we enjoy the quality of life here. Um, and it was just, it's our home. Uh, and that's why we love it here. I passed through my neighborhood the other day and uh, most of the homes in my neighborhood are coming back. Uh, in my block, I am the only person, except for an elderly lady who stayed on the corner, who's not back. But uh, for the most part, my area seems to be coming back, and I can't wait to get back home. Currently back in my restored home. Doing very well. My son is excited to be back in his room with his toys and his space and his own TV to play his video games. Being back, there's a lot of demand of just keeping clubs or keeping activities up for the kids. So I am the uh, Cub Master for Cub Scouts, so that boys have Cub Scouts at his school. Um, he is very active in um, baseball with Lakeview Playground every summer, which started up the summer of 2006. And this is their third season, so the kids and parents and families have really had a sense of community of coming back. And um, it's a relaxing atmosphere and uh, also a sign of hope. More and more families come back every single year. 
The full impact of Hurricane Katrina has yet to be felt. This despite the fact that it has spawned books, films, hyperbole, and conspiracy theories. For my master's thesis at Tulane University, I asked employees at the New Orleans District of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to allow me to record their memories of Katrina. This video oral history is not intended as a comprehensive look at the storm and it is not authorized by the Corps of Engineers. Three years after the storm, I wanted to document people's experiences and am grateful to have the opportunity to present them here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.